KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. From that point on, I just was going to try to be there for support for guys. Just changed the whole culture of our program and how we went about it and start to build the relationships in a whole different way than I had. And from that point on, everything flipped. And our guest this week, Steve Donahue, head coach of the men's basketball team at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. The pandemic took away last season from you. Everything looks on point and on course for this year. Just how excited are you and the guys to be able to get back to work, basically? You know, I can't put it in words, actually, Matt. It's been 20 months between games and all the uh, ups and downs that we all experienced during the pandemic. But for us, having not played last year, uh, we did practice in the uh, spring. Uh, But to think about games coming up and fans in the stands and all the great things that the kids think about with college basketball and we're beyond excited. What were the biggest challenges of the time before you guys were able to practice and kind of be together? What were the biggest challenges of trying to keep the group on point and, and just help them work through what's really an unprecedented time in history for us? Well, Matt, uh, typically as a coach, you like to provide perspective, answers, and that's what I've done my whole career. And to have an unprecedented situation with no real understanding of what the next day would bring was extremely difficult. And for their small window of being in college and and playing basketball, something they worked for their whole lives and having that being taken away, that that was difficult. Um, I do appreciate the NCAA allowing these guys to get the year back, whether it's here or somewhere else. So at least they can relax and feel that they can work hard. They can play their sport they love at some point, And we're going to provide that when it was safe. The, the the last couple of years, I'm sure it has had to institute new practices. I mean, we're talking over Zoom, and this was not something in my repertoire prior to March of 2020. Has it changed the way you approach things or the way you look at things? Uh, were there any reassessments or anything, some necessity, and maybe just some from having a year away from the grind of a season that have made you look at things or do things differently? Well, there's a lot of things um, that when I – realize that it's going to be a long time between games. I was going to try to take advantage of it professionally uh, and really analyze where we were as a program, uh, what we're doing, how can we do things better, uh, think about certain things differently. Um, and that's kind of the approach I took. I think we just really looked at what we did for the first five seasons I think we did a good job in getting the program back to the, to a level uh, that we expected to be at Penn. We won an Ivy League championship. We won a Big Five championship. But I think there's another step to be taken, and maybe a few more that I think the potential this program has. And that's kind of where my thoughts went. What can I do offensively, defensively, recruiting? how we do things and try to elevate this to another level. Um, And I kind of enjoyed the process and that's what we've been doing in the spring. And, and when we came back in the fall, implementing things that I think can help us uh, take the program to higher heights. So let's talk a little bit about your journey. Grew up in Delaware County and you were basketball and baseball growing up, right? That's correct. Was it just whatever? Did one kind of seamlessly work into the other as far as time of year and stuff like that? Yeah, you know, I was probably a typical kid. I played football, basketball, baseball till ninth grade, then just baseball and basketball. I loved them both. Um, in some ways, I was probably a better baseball player. Uh, my physical limitations on the basketball court were probably eventually going to catch up. 
Um, but I loved it. And I also loved the ability just to grab a ball and work on your game and the joy that that brought me. Um, that was probably why I continued. I played through college, both of them, but it was always basketball. Uh, that was always my, uh, really my number one passion for sure. Did you find that they complemented each other as far as preparation, skill set, stuff like that? You know what I think it does, Matt? I think for for kids who decide too early to focus on one, I think allowing yourself to try something different, uh, it helps mentally and physically. You use different skill sets uh, physically, give your you know your ankles a break and your knees a break by playing on grass for three or four months. Uh, but also just the strategy, the camaraderie is different. The downtime's different. The kids are different. It's just a whole different culture of two sports that I think provide, provided me with a whole different awareness of, you know, just different kids and different experiences. And it was fun. I looked forward to both of them. Uh, I loved hanging out in the dugout and talking strategies and bus rides with kids. And, and then basketball is the same thing. It was way different going into the inner city and playing at West Catholic and uh, raucous crowds and all the things you had to do as a group to overcome that. So I think it provides you just whole different experiences that probably help you down the line in life of uh, doing different things well. You went to Cardinal O'Hara, correct? That is correct. So growing up in the Catholic League in Philadelphia, do you remember early on realizing the Philadelphia basketball scene was special? I mean, obviously at a young age, you don't have anything to compare it to. But did you realize even as a kid high school that this was a special place for hoops? I did. I um you know, I, I early on went to the Palestra for college games. But my father, I remember even in the eighth grade, taking me to a Roman Catholic Bonner game. And Roman Catholic had a guy named Reggie Jackson, who was a parade All-American at that time. And the level of intensity in the Bonner gym was something I just, I can still remember it to this day. And I was like, wow, this is just an an intimate, personal environment that is very rare in sports, especially in high school. Like when you're in a basketball game, I was five feet away from the action and seeing the level of intensity was something that I really just grew to. And I said, I, gosh, I'd love to be a part of that. Um, and that's probably, you know, just seeing the different programs and the gyms in Philly and playing those kind of atmospheres really drew me to the sport. What's your earliest memory of the palestra? I, I think I told this story before, but I, I went with a, a bitty basketball league. We got picked up at a bus in, in Ridley Township Library and drove in and watched the doubleheader. And Penn Yale was the first game. St. Joe's LaSalle was the second. And Ronnie Hagler, which I told him this, uh, a jump ball with two seconds left at the foul line, which they used to do. We don't do it anymore. Caught it at the top of the key and drained a two-pointer to win the game, and the crowd rushed on. And that was only half the night. Then we had St. Joe's LaSalle after that, and I was like, wow, this, this is amazing. And I, I probably knew at that point I was never going to be physically good enough to play, so I kind of – uh, gravitated towards the coaches anyway and looked at, you know, at that point, Chuck Daly and uh, Paul Westhead and uh, Jimmy Lionel and all those great coaches. And once again, the impact that those guys had in basketball seemed so much more than any other sport because the game, they're right on top of the game and they're strategizing so much each and every possession that I, I thought I loved it. 
you did you went to Ursinus and you did play hoops and baseball. Uh, what made you choose to go to Collegeville? What was you know were there other schools you were looking at, and what sold you on becoming a Bear? You know, literally the only letter I ever got from a school is from Skip Worley. Um, I thought it was neat that I got a letter, and I followed it up and I met with them up there and literally said that I love to go here. There's a guy that he was just building the program. Uh, they won literally zero games three years prior. Um, and I thought it was really cool that he wanted to build a champion. And he did. He took a team to the final four out of nowhere. Um, and I loved that it was a, enough away from home. But honestly, that I could play baseball and basketball was a big part of it. Um, and it was a great move for me. It was perfect for me. Um, I didn't really explore a ton of other options, honestly. So much different now with what I go through in recruiting and even with my own family and my kids. It's so much different, but it was pretty simple. I, I really liked the guy who was wanted me to come, and I said, this is perfect for me. What are some of your best college mem- memories with regards to athletics, basketball or baseball? When you think of your time, what comes rushing back? Well, our freshman year, uh, although I didn't even make the travel squad, um, we went to the Final Four. And just that whole experience of really, as I said, they won zero games four years ago prior to that. And just to see the level of that and then play on the Elite Eight team the following year, those are incredible memories. Um, We beat number one ranked Scranton at Scranton in the NCAA tournament, my sophomore year. But the thing that's to me, and I, I say this to when I recruit, the best thing I got out of it was the best friends I'll ever have for the rest of my life. I have seven or eight guys that I played with that are my closest friends. They're godparents to my kids. I'm godparents to their kids. We're in their weddings. I'm still close with my college coach, Skip Worley. Uh, baseball was an incredible experience driving down in vans to Florida for spring break and playing those games and having the camaraderie and the brotherhood that we still have to this day. That was why I got into coaching more than anything else is I wanted to continue to be part of a team and part of a job that Literally, I had an impact on kids' lives that they could could have this type of experience that I had. You mentioned coaching, and you mentioned gravitating towards it. When it's time to go out, college is over, get a get a job. How do you get started in coaching? How did you break through? Because that's a lot of times the first job's the toughest job. Yeah, once again, I talk to a lot of kids. Uh, there's no exact map to do it. Um, I knew no one in coaching. Uh, I worked a few camps, but I basically, my college coach went back to high school uh, and I worked for him for three years. In the meantime, I got a a full-time job at a MAB paints in sales. So I could make kind of make my own hours and work my way up to coaching ranks. And I worked there for three years at Springfield high school Went to Monsignor Bonner, was an assistant with Fran O'Hanlon there. Went to, with Herb McGee, uh, at that time, Philadelphia Textile, for two years. Never making money, still working at MAB Paints. And then five years, I was a volunteer with Fran Dunphy at Penn. Um, and eventually became a full-time assistant here uh, when I was 33 years old. But I say that because when guys think they, hey, let's get into coaching, something you love. Well, I didn't make a dime coaching until I was 33 years old. And every April when the season was over, kind of evaluated, do I want to now marry, have a couple of kids? What am I doing? And I just always came back to the fact that I wanted to do this. I didn't want to have to wake up every day not loving what I do. And I'm very fortunate that I I had guys like Fran O'Hanlon and Skip Worley and 
and most importantly, Fran Dunphy, that gave me a chance to prove it. And then I just tried to do my best to work on my craft and be as good a coach, assistant coach as I can so I can provide those guys with really good assistant coach ability so our program could be successful. And then eventually I could get my own opportunity. You mentioned the flexible schedule when you're selling the paint. Kind of give me a, a window into the balancing act you did was that with that. Would you find yourself after games, you know, filling in calls when you can and stuff like that? What was it like? Well, the, the good thing was this is 1995, uh, excuse me, 1985 when I started at MAB and doing all my coaching. No cell phones, which was great. So I can go around and the, the, the simple fact was I had to provide my employer with the right results. So my sales figures had to be there. So my typical day was I got up at, and I was at usually a contractor's office at 6 a.m. in Delaware was my territory. And I worked the day as long as I could. Obviously, all season, I could do a lot more uh, with work. But 2.30, I head into, into either Bonner, Springfield High School, Philadelphia Textile, or Penn. And I do my job. And uh, here I, at Penn, I coach the JV team. So I do practice from 4 to 6, and then JV from 6.30 to 8, 9. I go home and start the day over again. But I loved it. And here I was being able to work and make some money and still do what I love. But obviously, hoping to the day that I didn't have to do that other job and just focus on coaching. You mentioned all the places where you were balancing the two. When you do become a coach, when you can put sales aside, do you remember that moment? Like what that was like to kind of realize like, okay, I don't, it's not a balancing act anymore. I can focus on what I obviously love to do. I do. I, I cause it's, you know, honestly, it's how I feel every day. I, I know, um, one of the luckiest people and I'm grateful for this opportunity. Cause I wake up, I, I don't really care what day of week it is. I know people at work worry about Monday through Friday. I don't, uh, I work weird hours, but when it initially happened, it was, you know, it was just one of real being grateful that now I can just coach and how fun it was to go home and just look at film and, figure out ways to help guys get better and then putting a schedule together the next day and working out guys on their own and trying to help them get better. And I still feel that way. I, there's, uh, I just walk around here looking at a place like Penn and I get to coach here and help kids and meet great families. And so that feeling was one of complete, euphoria that I did never had. And I didn't dislike my work job. It's just that I loved what I did basketball and to think that I could do it full time was so gratifying. You mentioned a couple of the guys you, you worked with Fran O'Hanlon, Herb McGee. Are there one or two things you learned from them that kind of helped mold you into the, the coach you are today? Cause those are a couple of special names in Philadelphia basketball. Yeah, I think all the guys I worked for helped me out in different ways. Uh, Franny O was someone that took to me, um, and I always admired him, but he asked me to go with him just from playing pickup basketball and developing a relationship that he believed that I could bring value. And that was great because he was someone that was so in always thinking uh, how to do things differently, in particular offensively, and so inventive that I learned so much from him, just how to teach the game and how to talk to kids about offense. And then you go to Herb. Herb was already so different. Herb was never an assistant coach, basically always ran his stuff. And he was doing stuff back in the eighties that 
honestly, they, that most NBA teams are doing now with, you know, five out offenses and the center being a pivot and running offense through them. He was doing that forever. And just to see that coach. And he also, he has an amazing ability to make his guys very confident. That was something I, I don't know if I could do it as well as he, but he, he just empowered his, his guys to believe in themselves. And then Dumpf. Dumpf was an amazing motivator, uh, allowed assistant coaches to do things that they did well and him to do what he did well. And he could really, once again, get his teams to play at such a high level every single day that enables his team. By the time games come, the guys were so ready because they practiced at such a high level each and every day. I make sure I think it dumps a lot, just that he would never let those two, two and a half hours go by without getting better. Um, so I took something from all of them. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will be back with Penn men's basketball coach, Steve Donahue, right after this. And we are back. Our guest this week on one-on-one University of Pennsylvania head men's basketball coach, Steve Donahue. What is, how, how does the door to Penn open? I think it was 1990 when you, when you come on board, how does that come together? So I interviewed the year before Franio let Bonner to go be an assistant with Fran Dunphy. And they had a assistant already hired. They hired somebody else, but the, the next year, one assistant left and I interviewed again after working uh, with her for two years, I got the job. And once again, like there's a couple things. I think the job being unpaid allowed dump to consider me. I think if it was a paid assistant job, which we still have an unpaid assistant job here in the Ivies, I think that allowed dump to look at a bigger pool of guys. And here was I, I was willing to do it for nothing. Um, I think that was a huge break for me because I don't think I would have been hired with the pool. He would have probably considered if it was a paid position. And that's how I did it. I did it for five years and uh, we won a ton of games, uh, 48 straight Ivy league games, three straight titles, three NBA players. And, it was a, an incredible way to start my uh, Division One career. When do you start thinking? I think everybody dreams about having their own program. But when do you start in your head thinking, you know what, I feel like I'm ready to start looking in that direction. I feel like I've learned a lot. I've got a lot of experience. I understand what the job takes. Do you remember a point when you had the conversation with yourself or someone else and you started to think, that's going to be the, I th- I feel like I'm ready. I think the, the truth is I, I was very confident in my ability, but I, I was humbled by how much it took to win depending on where you went and the circumstances. So I wasn't naive to the fact that Penn is a great place for winning. Franio gets the Lafayette job. And then I get his assistant job. I do that for three years and I start interviewing at many places. And at that point, I felt the urge that I I was ready. And I miss out on jobs at Yale, Brown, William & Mary, Albany. That same summer, I didn't get it. So I thought I was coming back for year 11. Once again, life throws curveballs. The Cornell job opens up in August. Scott Thompson, uh, the current coach, comes down with uh, colon cancer. He did survive. Uh, he became a good friend, uh, was my neighbor and still a great friend. But he stepped down from coaching. And if that job opens up in April, like most jobs, I don't know if I get the job. But in September, late August, uh, I'm I have a shot at it, and I have, I'm grateful for a guy named Bob Chaddock, who was an associate AD, was a Division three athlete, 
So we kind of, we hit it off a little bit. And obviously my experience in the Ivies. And then the, the athletic director, Andy Noel, um, saw something in me because I never was a coach. And he gave me the opportunity. Uh, and it wasn't an easy job. Uh, but it was, a, it was a perfect place for me to really learn what it's like to be a head coach and not have to win right away, but grow as a coach. What was the biggest change? Because I've heard people talk about going from assistant to head coach. It's like the longest three feet in the world because it just changes so much. What were the, the biggest eye-opening things for you when you take over a program that, oh, that's my responsibility now. Oh, I've got to get in front of that. Do you remember the, the things that really opened your eyes? I, I think the thing that jumped out at me at that point was how little I really knew of what it takes to be a head coach. I think I thought I did. And I struggled being myself, uh, struggled with what type of kid we should recruit, what the culture should be like. At Penn, I got, Penn was such a great place and Dump was such an amazing coach and leader that I assumed that it would be easy. And I probably didn't realize the steps you had to take. And it took me three, four years to really understand how to be myself, what I wanted the culture to be like, what type of kids I was going to coach, and then how you're going to play the game. I probably thought, hey, I'll play this way and everything else will take care of itself. So I learned on the job. I always say the best thing about when I took the Cornell job was that no one really cared about the success of the program at the time. It may have been the worst thing about the job at the same time. It allowed me to make mistakes and grow as a coach and not be under the scrutiny of, well, you're not winning. And I go back to Andy Noel each year would come in and say he loved what we were doing, what we were trying to accomplish. And I'm, I'm just grateful that I, I had a guy who believed in what we were doing, even though to me, it was hard to see that even if I was him, um, but he believed in what we were doing. Do you remember the first time you matched up with them? First Cornell Penn game and yeah. what that was like? Yeah. Cause I, I left it in September. So I actually worked our guys out in September and I leave. So I've recruited all these freshmen, which was a, a great class of Coco Archibong and uh, Charlie cop and Adam Chubb and, we had Uganda a neckway the year before. And I remember I'm at the game and I, you know, I whistle and I had all those guys turning their heads every time I whistled. They were so used to that stupid whistle. Um, but it was hard. It was, it was just felt odd. But the more I, I stayed at Cornell, the more it started to feel normal. Um, I never beat Dumpf. At Cornell as a pen when he was the pen coach, uh, beat me twelve straight times. Teams were remarkable. Uh, I thought we got better each year, um, but uh, I feel uh, not what you asked me. But when I came back here, this feels like I never left, even though I hadn't been here in sixteen years and went through a lot of changes. But this always felt like home. Penn has always felt the place that I love basketball from a young age, and coaching and the palestra. This has always felt like home. Do you remember the point in your growth as a head coach when you felt like it all started to make sense? Because by the end of your run at Cornell, you guys have tremendous success, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But do you remember, was there a practice, a game, where you all of a sudden felt, you know what, I kind of see the whole picture now, and I it were, we turned the corner, and, and I get things that maybe were question marks before. Do you remember, was there a, a moment? This could be a Zoom itself, Matt. Uh, there was a, uh, we had a crazy 
traumatic experience. Uh, could have been worse, so I'll, I'll preface that. Uh, year six, um, hadn't won, still losing record every year. We lose our first game to Columbia, which back then, if you remember, you played your travel partner first, back to back. We lose at the buzzer on a Saturday. And we had a good crowd there. We had it's like employees day, family day, girls, boys, doubleheader. We lose at the buzzer. And I thought we were starting to turn a corner, but gosh, it was such a devastating loss because you don't have a conference tournament. You can't lose to Columbia if you're going to challenge. I went recruiting. I took a red eye back from California on Monday. I got there Monday morning. We practiced. And I just had a, a practice that I was practicing. And I don't blame what happened on me, but I was practicing in a way that wasn't me. Just like, how can I make this hard on guys? Practicing angry. Go back to what I thought the culture was like. And long story short, we had someone in a drill get hurt really bad. Khalid Gant uh, fractured his neck, uh, laid there motionless. Um, fortunately, he was laying on someone's leg who didn't move. We air vacuumed him out of there and within 20 minutes. He got eventually uh, flew to Shepherd Rehab in Atlanta. When he first got there, all he could move was his eyes. Four months later, he walked out of that facility. Never played basketball again. But to this day, he actually looks at it as a blessing. Him, it was some God was telling him that he needed to move on from basketball. He didn't love basketball by that point. And he's very successful in the music business. He's married, lives in France. But anyway, for me, when that happened, I just really came across in a way that, like, what am I doing? How, why am I coaching like this? Almost, what if that was my son? Will I be doing this? And from that point on, I just was going to try to be something different, be there for support for guys, try to be, just change the whole culture of our program and how we went about it and start to build the relationships in a whole different way than I had. I was just trying to take blood from a stone. And if you couldn't do it, then I was going to get someone that could. And I was going to start really, you know, really trying to build trust in guys and do it a whole different way. And from that point on, everything flipped. We got great recruits. We got played a great way. And the next four years were the four four best years in Cornell basketball history. And you win three straight Ivies, three straight NCAA tournaments. Uh, do all <laughs> I've all, all I've asked a lot of people this. Do championships hit differently? Like there's never anything like the first but it's so hard to do it back to back. And then for you specifically, that third year, that team was so good. You end up in the, the sweet 16, you know, do they hit differently? What I think, um, and I, I got explained to this before how the brain works, but the euphoria and really the dopamine in your brain is really fired up in the process of knowing that it's going to happen, that you're, you can work at it and you feel it coming. The actual crowning of that moment it's done is more of a relief. It's exciting, but it's the buildup each and every day, beating a good Harvard team and beating the Yale team that beat us and back to winning a game at the Palestra and seeing it each and every day. That was the, the things that I loved. Uh, and then the championships were validation of that. And the guys have fun and they love it. But back to your point, I think knowing that the first time, of course, that's an incredible satisfaction 
to see that building packed after it being empty with, and no one ever believing that you could do it at Cornell. Um, that was incredible. But the reason you do it the next year and the next year is saying, because you're not satisfied. You know that you can get better. And we had everyone coming back each and every year and we added pieces. And that challenge, as I said, um, seeing us win games and get better was what drove you. Uh, and it still drives me today because that's, to me, that's the way my brain works. I think most people do is that once you feel it coming, then you really, you can go into that extra gear and take it to another level. And that's, that's what we we're able to do at Cornell. How does, it is one thing to get to the championship. It's another thing to stay there. How does that change? If at all your approach, because once you win the first championship, now you're the one that everybody circles on the calendar. You're the one that are the highlight of all these Ivy weekends. You're the one that everybody wants to talk to in the media when you come to town, stuff like that. Is that a difficult transition? And how do you approach that with the kids? I think it's probably harder on young people. For me, it was always getting lost in the craft of my what I do for a living. And I I never like I don't even think coaches this is on another time. I don't think coaches should be in the Hall of Fame even. I think it's great they do it, but that's not why we do it. Like I'm trying to be impactful for these group of guys. This is their one senior year, their one junior year. And so when we win one championship, the next group's a whole different thing. And I'm going to dive in and figure out how that group can get better. I'm not going to worry about, in our league, the other seven other teams. I'm going to figure out what is it going to take for us to be better. Uh, and the, it may be different hurdles, different uh, obstacles, but – that was always easy for me. It still is um, to, to, to really get better. And the enjoyment I get out of that is what we can do for, as I said, for that one class to help that group. What's in the past uh, doesn't really matter anymore. And the future isn't that important either. It's what you're doing with that team that day. Um, and I think that's the fun part of my occupation, my sport. There's a beginning and an end each year. And that's how I look at it. I don't really concern myself with all things that are exterior to what we're trying to do. And I, I do this a lot in the preseason. I put a box of the things on a big board, the things that we should care about in the box. And then outside the box, what could derail this? And some of the things are reading press clippings, worrying about Instagram likes, care what other programs are doing, worry about what parents think we should do or our role, worrying about all those things. And then what can we can control? And I do that for practice for me and for our teams. It's just say, you know, be a great teammate. How well can you come? today to practice how hard you're going to go in the lifts how can you lift up your teammates those are the things that are are important and will determine our eventual destination so winning a championship is for the destination the goals are the things that we do every day and the standards that we keep are going to determine that destination which is obviously an ivy league championship the third and final Ivy Championship at Cornell, 2009-2010. You get the NCAA tournament. You're tragically underseeded as a 12. But when the line comes up that you're getting Temple in the first round, coached by Fran Dunphy, can you take me through the 30 seconds of seeing that line and processing it and what that was like? <laughs> it's actually online somewhere because we, we had a huge party at our gym. So it's up on the big screen and I'm in the middle of the players. I think I, my kids are with me and 
they, our name comes up and it's versus Temple and they all jump out of their seats and I just put my head down and I like, I just, I can't believe this. And honestly, it, I, I didn't care. We were under seat at 12. We did do some really good things. We were ranked in the top 25 and all that. But in our profession, the, the pinnacle is the NCAA tournament. And the last thing I want to do is not root for Fran Dunphy to, to advance in the NCAA tournament. And to know that we were going against each other took a lot of fun out of the, the whole week leading up to it. Um, and I knew they were a great team. I thought that was Fran's best team maybe ever. Um, number one or two in the country in defensive efficiency, 29 wins, just incredible team. So I thought it was a, it's going to be a heck of a challenge, but more importantly, I was just kind of disappointed that we had to go against each other. And of course, like he does everything, he handled it with incredible class um, before, during, and after. Uh, his teams, his team played well. Our team played out of their minds. Um, and I and I say this all honestly. I had very little to do with it. It was three years in the coming, the making of. They took it. I I never coached so few possessions in my whole life is that two NCAA games that we won down there. So it was an incredible experience for us. And as I said, I still feel bad that we had to do it against Dump. But after that, you beat Wisconsin. So I'm curious, given all that that you just said, what is the elation you feel for beating Wisconsin? Because I would imagine you can allow yourself to feel everything that maybe you were torn on, uh, conflicted with because you beat such a close friend in Fran Dunphy. When you beat Wisconsin, what's the elation like for that and going to the Sweet 16? Well, once again, I think they're a number one defensive team in the country. And neither of the games, we led the nation three-point shooting percentage and we were up there in makes obviously as well but we didn't make a lot of threes uh, and then to beat those two teams because they're so good defensively they took away a lot and the respect that for Bo Ryan who just happens to be uh, a Delaware County guy like Dunf and I um, yeah it was it was incredible um, I, I didn't allow at that time um, because I just thought even after we won the first one, uh, I remember Tommy Brennan, who's the head coach of Vermont at the time. Uh, he just retired, but he came to one of our games during the year. He goes, you're going to get to the NCAA tournament. What I don't want you to do is be satisfied with winning one game. And I said, because we, if you remember Vermont beat Syracuse on uh, a crazy jump shot at the end of the game, he goes, I was just so happy we won one game because you're good enough to win more than that. And that kind of stuck with me. Uh, so after we beat Temple and, and then I thought we could beat Wisconsin if we played well, I still thought that way when we played Kentucky. I thought if we can play our game, I think we have a shot. And, uh, to Kentucky's credit, um, they really guarded us. We did – we played – Hard nose, but we did not play well offensively, and they had a lot to do with it. With Bledsoe, Walls, Cousins, six first-round picks. I wish we got a different draw because the other two I thought we could have beat, which was Washington and West Virginia. Uh, I thought we could have got to a Final Four. Time for another break on one-on-one. We will continue our conversation with Steve Donahue right after this. And we are back continuing our conversation with Steve Donahue, head men's basketball coach at the University of Pennsylvania. So after that season, an opportunity comes uh, at Boston College. You had accomplished so much at Cornell. How difficult was leaving the Big Red at that point? The worst part about our business, um, 
you have great success with people you love. You kind of want to kind of reward everybody with staying there and enjoying what you built uh, with the, the players you recruited, the coaches that you're with, the administration that supported you, your family, friends. And sure enough, um, there was um, – I had five or six – uh, schools that wanted to interview me between uh, games at the beat in Wisconsin and the Sweet 16. And I thought that was ridiculous. I didn't do that. Um, and then there was numerous ones after that. And I just thought at that point for me, uh, Boston College was the right fit. Uh, it, it was the right type of school, an AD that I really uh, hit it off with. In, in a league that I thought was the pinnacle of college basketball in the ACC. And I wanted to see um, how I would fare at that level. Um, unfortunately, you had to do it days after going to a, a Sweet 16 with Cornell. And it's interesting. You're, you're so much of your coaching life is anchored in Philadelphia. Then you go to Cornell, which has the Ivy connection with Penn. So there's a familiarity there. Boston College, it's new on all fronts. How uh, how challenging was that? I mean, obviously ACC you mentioned, but there wasn't a a familiarity I would imagine like you had had at every other step of the the road. No, you know, Matt. Um, you know, I've been in, uh, by that time I've been in the business a long time. I study. That's kind of my hobby is basketball. So I had a good understanding of that level um and and there's a lot of things that have to go right for it to work at that level uh we won 21 games my first year finished fourth in the acc with a depleted roster so i thought we were in great shape and i loved literally every day at bc i i had no problems with what happened? Uh, obviously, the only day I don't like is the day I was let go. Um, but I also know at that level, that's what comes with it. Um, one bad season, which is essentially what we had, um, the, there could be people that don't completely understand what you're building, but that's what they do at that level with the money, with the exposure, everything that's involved. So, um I thought um, BC was a Jesuit school. I went to 12 years of Catholic school. My family all went to a Jesuit university. I'm very comfortable in that. Um, and it, it just didn't work out for numerous reasons, but it made me a way better coach. Uh, I made mistakes. Uh, I appreciated the opportunity. Uh, and as I said, I'm fortunate that Penn came up at the time it did. And that experience made me more prepared for this one that I'm doing now. And you did TV for the year after Boston College. There's a year of TV before you come to Penn. What was that year like still being plugged in, but not having so much the grind and the pressure and stuff like that? Is it uh, rejuvenating at all? Was it just a lot of fun and something you needed to, for lack of a better term, cleanse the palate before you took your next opportunity? How do you look at that year? Yeah, I, I, um, I definitely do. I, I, there are some other opportunities I could have jumped at uh, as a head coach and as an assistant at the highest level. But I just thought uh, I was fortunate enough to be getting paid. I didn't want to move my family. And I thought it was a year that I could really dive in and figure out, one, what went wrong, and two, what can I do better when the next opportunity comes? So TV allowed that. So I did about 35, 40 games, visiting schools, watching practices, going to NBA practices, and just really trying to find up uh, – my craft and what, what do I need to do better next time? And it was a great year. Now the uncertainty of not knowing 
where where I would end up did does wear on you, but you got to block it out. Um, and I was able to do that. And I was so grateful that Dr. Calhoun called and uh, was interested in me coming back here to Penn. Yeah, that's my next question. What is it like when the opportunity starts to crystallize and you see you're going to be able to come back to a place where you were a part of a lot of special basketball? You know, I, I get it. I get this asked a lot and, and even recruits now like, oh, it must be great. You came back to your hometown, came back to Penn. And it's funny when I when I was looking at jobs, uh, my agent came with like 10, 15 possibilities and I went through them all. And I say this to recruits. I just don't know why I would go to any of these places. They're all good schools but they're in 14 team leagues. What makes this university different than that one? I couldn't, yeah, I, I would have to go maybe, but the reason Penn excite, excited me was it's an incredible university that you can attract great kids that can compete nationally. There it is. That for the professional side of me. It just happens to be a place I was at. It just happens to be in Philadelphia. Uh, it was all the other things, no matter where this place was, that attracted me. And I try to tell that to kids that look at different schools. I'm just telling you, look at Penn and what it has to offer, a top five school that can compete. And I honestly feel we can get back to a Final Four here. But we need kids that decide that Penn is the right place for them, yet they could compete at the highest level. So when you come back to Penn, after a few years, you get an Ivy League title and you become, I think, the only coach to win Ivy titles with two different institutions. As someone who had a front row seat as the play-by-play guy watching that season, it was so much fun to watch it come together. If I had told you, if I'm sitting down and having this conversation with you in October before that season in 2017, uh, and I say Ivy title, NCAA tournament, did you feel that was in the cards, that that was the natural progression? Did that group come together a little quicker than you thought? In some ways it did, Matt, but, like, man, I go into every season thinking that if I can do things the right way and put the guys in the right spots and play the right way, that we had a chance. There was also, like, I saw a lot of promise from the year before. If you remember, we were so young and we played so well at the end of that year. Um taking a Princeton undefeated Princeton team to overtime in the Ivy league tournament and essentially everybody back, uh, including a young AJ Broder uh, and Ryan Bentley, who I thought was going to be two of the better players as sophomores. And then I looked at our leadership and Darnell Foreman, who I just thought was a unique kid who just hard to me think that he was going to go out without a real fight for a championship. So I, I, I just, that weighed on me. And then I thought if we can get growth out of like Caleb Wood, who I thought was good, just got overwhelmed a little bit the year before. I just thought we could put it together. Now we start out 0-2. We didn't play well either at Fairfield and LaSalle. And then we, and we put together an incredible defensive team and a very good, efficient Ivy League team in, uh, in the in league play for sure. Uh, but I do think uh, the leadership of Darnell in particular with that younger group was pretty remarkable. I talked about you being tragically underseeded that year with Cornell as a 12. You guys go to the NCAA tournament, 24 wins, win the Ivy regular season Ivy tournament 
you get a 16 and that gets you to Wichita to play a one seed Kansas in a de facto home game. Uh, what kind of take me through those 30 seconds again, thrilled to be in the tournament, but you see that. And I would imagine there's a like, seriously, like, you know, that, that doesn't seem to to track. Well, you know, I'm very analytical. So I put the numbers to it. At worst, I think we could have been a 15 and not the worst 15. Could argue that we could have been a 14 just by the numbers. But there's a lot of things that go into the tournament and there's a big debate to me. They say no, but our game basically goes up against the NCAA tournament show. So it would have been difficult. I and At that point, by the numbers, Harvard, if they won that game, they were going to be a 16. They, their, their Ken Palms, their net numbers were all that. We weren't. But I don't know if they could have juggled the bracket at that point. And at that back of the bracket, don't worry about the ones, twos, and threes. 14, 15s, and 16s, they probably don't concern themselves with. So, so I, I still say we were thrilled to go there. Um, it was an incredible environment. The practices were sold out in Wichita. Uh, and then to play a team like Kansas that went to the final four and play them well for 30 minutes. Uh, we didn't play our best game, but we didn't play awful either. So all in all, I thought it was great. And I personally think if that game's on a true neutral court, yeah. I it I'd been very interested to see how that result might have dovetailed from what uh actually saw. But the next year you guys win the big five. How how important is that? And I don't mean I mean it's obviously important, but the Big Five is so special and it's so unique to to grab that championship. What does that mean to you? And what does that mean to the program? Yeah, I I think it's incredible accomplishment because we just, you know, we weren't there with those programs when we first got here to think that we can win an outright 4-0 Big Five championship and beat Villanova. Um, in particular, with our leading scorer from the year before out the year uh, with a torn Patel tendon and Ryan Bentley. Uh, that was a great accomplishment. And, uh, and the, the way it broke down was pretty remarkable because we struggled. Uh, Michael Wong got hurt again and we had to beat Temple and St. Joe's if they're not playing well. And it was something I know these guys will never forget. Uh, I do think all of us in the big five value that championship so much. Uh, I wouldn't say more than an Ivy league championship, but in some ways for us, we like to say we're a big five team that plays in the Ivy league, not the other way around. It just gives us credibility uh, with the other programs in the city. And I think our guys want that. That's they have a little chip on their shoulder. They want to they want to play with those teams and be looked at as a, a very good big five team. And my final question, of all the things that go into being a head coach, what is your favorite thing? Is it practice? Is it pregame? Is it afterwards? Is it the bus ride home? Whatever. What's the favorite part of what you do? I, you know the part I miss the most on my year out? And I didn't miss it this time as much as being part of a team. Like just, that was, that's what I love about it. I love that. It's not about any individual. We're all doing this together. Um, I miss, I really missed knowing that, uh, that part of it. Like I can get into, I love building relationship with guys and being a part of their life. I love the tactical side of basketball. I love the competitiveness of it. But it's all about because I'm part of a team. And when I didn't have that, that felt very odd. That was a part of me that I identified not just as a coach, but being part of that team and not having that when I, when I didn't have it that year was very strange. 
I love that the most. Still do. Come every day. We're doing this as a team. So those are the things that uh, I love about it, for sure. Steve Donahue, thanks so much for taking the time. This was great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. And that will do it for this week's episode. I want to thank Steve Donahue, head men's basketball coach at the University of Pennsylvania, for being our guest this week. Now, if you like this show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. Now, you can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon Ten Sixty. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.